A California city wants to charge over $1,000 for a gun carry permit. The conversation with National Review's Charles Cook on Ron DeSantis' new program reforms. And an interview with Reload member Liz Mayer. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. And if you want to help support the reporting we do, you can also pick up a membership today. That is how we fund our work here at The Reload. It's how we break stories. It's how we continue to bring you the latest news from around the country on firearms policy and politics. But this week, we have guest with us that I like quite a lot, who uh, has been on the show once before, and uh, I'm happy to have back. We have Charles Cook from National Review. Welcome to the show, Charles. Thanks for having me. Uh, always good to have you on. I always enjoy reading everything you're writing out there, uh, especially about guns. Our, our resident uh, Florida man now, right? Yeah, had to had to make sure we had a dress code for the show this week, at least a shirt. That um, was what I was told. I had to wear a shirt at the very least. You know, that's just like a convenience store on, you know, in Tampa Bay or something. At least put a shirt on if you can, if you can. <laughs> but um, yes, we we want to have Florida man on today because we have Florida news. And, and so we are we are going to talk about what's going on in the, the gunshine state, as people like to call it. Uh, there are a, a number of proposals coming through the Florida legislature right, legislature right now, backed by Governor Ron DeSantis. And uh, why don't you, you're there, you follow this, give us a little bit of update. What's, what's going on in the legislature? What are they pushing? Well, the big one, the one that's got the national attention is permitless carry or constitutional carry, as it's called. This is, I think, getting more attention in Florida than elsewhere for probably three reasons. The first one is that Florida is big, mm. populous. Uh, the second is that Florida is governed by Ron DeSantis, who is a subject of great fascination for the media. And the third one is that if Florida adopts permitless carry, it will become the 26th state to have it, the yep. 25th state to do it legislatively. Vermont had it judicially going back 100 years. But Florida will be the 25th, legislatively the 26th overall, and thus will represent a turning point. Because at that point, a majority of states will have it. It's actually a little bit odd, given Florida's history, that Florida has waited this long mm. to do it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's going to go through in this session. Yeah, that's one of the interesting things about Florida, right? It has that that reputation, that nickname, the Gunshine State, because, uh, you know, a couple of decades back, they really were at the forefront of these sorts of um, uh, reforms to gun policies, starting with shall issue gun carry, right? It's the first real big state to do that at a time when, gun carry, you know, concealed carry was basically banned everywhere. And, uh, and so this sort of started that revolution that now is spread to literally every state after the Supreme Court decision last year. 
And, um, but in 2018, you know, after Parkland, the state actually passed a number of uh, gun restrictions. And, and so it's been a couple of years since Florida has really been aligned with the other red states that have really pushed the boundaries as far as uh, eliminating some of these restrictions. And, and so now it seems like, you know, it's catching back up perhaps to where the, the rest of red America is on these issues, right? Yeah. Now, uh, on that, I say permitless carry when I talk about this rather than constitutional carry for a couple of reasons. The first one is, although I am strongly, vehemently in favor of permitless carry, I'm not convinced that the Constitution mandates it. I'm not convinced that the states cannot enforce some sort of permitting regime. I personally think those permitting regimes are completely pointless. I think they cost people money and time and do nothing. Uh, but I think the conclusion in Bruin was correct, that the most a state can do is a shall issue permitting regime, but that it's not necessarily obliged to go further. But the other reason in connection with Florida that I would call it permitless carry is that some people use constitutional carry to mean more than just permitless carry. They use constitutional carry to cover open carry as well. Hmm. And Florida is not going to adopt open carry unless the bill is amended. Historically, there's a couple of reasons that Florida has been skeptical toward open carry. In fact, it's one of five states now, I think, that don't have open carry at all. The first is that Florida was obviously in the Confederacy. It was segregated uh, until the 1960s. And a huge number of prohibitions on open carry in American history came as the result of anti-black racism. That's why Texas had to adopt it a few years ago. Everyone assumes, well, Texas would, of course, have open carry. Well, no, Texas didn't have open carry. In fact, they didn't have constitutional, uh, sorry, they didn't have a concealed carry until the mid-90s. And right. that's because there was a freak out over freed blacks owning guns. Uh, the second reason Florida hasn't got open carry, probably the reason it won't adopt it now uh, is that it is a massive tourist destination. And there is just a difference, whether this is right or wrong, in the way that foreigners who come in will respond to concealed weapons, which they can't see, uh, and to openly carried weapons, which they can. And uh, I think there are a lot of people in Florida who are worried that an open carry rule enforced in, say, Orlando would be pretty damaging uh, to international tourism. Again, I'm not endorsing that view, but that's why I think it's never uh, never come up. So you, you're actually, funnily enough, getting a lot of criticism of Florida's bill from the right yeah. uh, because the, the sort of gun owners of America type groups uh, are pointing out that it doesn't include open carry and also that while it does have permitless carry, it is for residents only. So if you live in Georgia and you want to drive in, uh, you would have to have a permit from Georgia that would then be reciprocally respected by Florida. Whereas, uh, I looked this up the other day, once Florida has permitless carry, if I get rid of my concealed carry permit, I can drive to Coeur Idaho without needing a permit. Right. The vast majority of permitless carry states are permitless carry for everyone, irrespective of whether they live there or not. There are a few exceptions. North Dakota, I believe, uh, requires you to be a resident. But Florida is going to join North Dakota if the current bill is passed as a permitless carry state for residents only. 
uh, and with no open carry, which is rare. Yeah, so there, there's certainly uh, some interesting stuff going on with the permitless carry bill in terms of the details and and really where the criticism is mainly coming from uh, inside the state at the very least. Uh, you know, obviously you get uh, the White House, for instance, the other day well, took sure. a swipe at Florida, um, claiming that you know this is the opposite of what they should be doing in in the wake of um, you know, the Pine Hill shooting that where the journalist and the the young girl were were murdered. Um, Which, of course, had nothing to do with carry at all. Right. The, yeah. Or an assault wins ban. They, the press secretary for President Biden said that, you know, that instead of passing permitless carry, they should pass an assault wins ban. Of course, that case that she was reacting to, uh, the person had a long criminal history that would have made them uh, prohibited from being able to carry uh, under this bill, I believe. And also used a handgun, which would not have been prohibited I mean, under an assault and spin. I actually think that's worth dwelling on just for a quick moment. I'm sure the vast majority of your listeners know this, but it does lead to some confusion in the general population and confusion that is stoked by the opponents of permitless carry as to what permitless carry actually does and what it means. I saw on Joy Reid's show the other day, one of her guests said that Florida's bill would allow anyone to carry any gun anywhere. And all three parts of that are wrong. Uh, it doesn't allow anyone to carry a gun. The same people who are presumptively eligible for a concealed carry permit are allowed to carry, and the same people who are ineligible for a concealed carry permit are prohibited from carrying under permitless carry. It has no effect whatsoever on which guns a person is allowed to own or carry. Those are determined by state law and by the National 30, uh, 1934 National Firearms Act. Uh, and the, as for the where, that is, again, a completely separate question. Uh, the, the where a, uh, people are able to carry is set by state law. It differs from state to state. The rules change depending on where you go. Um, so, you know, there's this idea that it gets rid of all of the rules around carry that, that are uh, sort of promulgated in the, in the press. And this, this is just wrong. And all it does, literally all it does, is remove a bureaucratic hurdle. Uh, under Florida's, you mentioned Florida's shall issue law. It was one of the first states that had shall issue. Everyone, as long as they fit into certain categories, is eligible for a concealed carry permit. They just have to apply. Now, those categories are their age. They have to be over 21 in Florida. Their um, status, you can't be a tourist. Uh, their um, not being a felon or mentally right. ill. Right, uh, And then in Florida, there were some training requirements. Uh, as long as you meet those, you get the permit. It's, it's not like New York, although this is changing because of Bruin, that's a whole other conversation, where some police officer somewhere gets to decide whether or not you get a gun. Um, all this does is it stops you having to apply. Now, the, the, the best argument that I've ever heard for this, which I think is weak, is that the problem with that is that it removes the training requirement. If you were seeing an increase in accidents, everywhere because of constitutional carry that would carry more water we're not so who cares but other than that it's not changing who's eligible uh and who's not and i just thought it was worth reiterating because every time i turn on the tv and i hear someone arguing against this they say that these bills do what they don't right yeah no that's that's exactly right you know that, that that's sort of the essence of what permitless carry is that in the vast majority of states and now in every state right because Bruin changed this. There were eight states that had that May issue subjective standard where 
officials could just deny you because they felt like it basically. Uh, but all the other states essentially was just a background check and a training requirement. Not, although not every state had a training, Pennsylvania for instance, doesn't have a training requirement for their permit. It's just basically a $20 fee and a background check and they give you a permit. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a, a number of those things are fairly redundant too, right? I mean, when you go to buy your gun, you're going through the same background check, generally speaking, that you go through during a concealed carry permit application process. And, you know, as for, yeah, the training, sure, you don't need to do the training. Um, but honestly, and I'm a certified firearms instructor, the training is more of a, a, it's a responsibility. If you're going to carry a gun, you need to get some sort of training. You need to get some good training so that you understand how to safely handle your firearm and when you can use it legally. Uh, and those are not things that generally are even required in most classes that qualify somebody for a concealed carry license. For instance, I certified to teach the basic pistol course, which in the NRA basic pistol course, which in Virginia will qualify you for a concealed carry license. Right. But the basic pistol course does not teach you most of the things that you really need to know about carrying a firearm in public. It's just right. it teaches you about handguns and how to safely handle them, how to accurately shoot them, how to maintain them. It doesn't teach you uh, the, the other aspects of legally carrying a gun. So, it, I mean, you can even get some states will let you use in Virginia, for instance, will let you use your orders for if you're on station at a military base. But the military doesn't teach you how to conceal right. carry, right? Like, it's just so... And in the vast majority of states, you don't need a license before you can buy a gun. So if the argument is that people shouldn't have guns unless they've gone through a course that teaches them the basics of those guns, well, then in the vast majority of states, we already don't have that. Right. So, you know, that, that, I think that's a good point about addressing sort of some of the common complaints that you hear, common misinformation that you hear about permitless carry you know there's plenty people can have different opinions about this but you're right that the, we should all understand the basic facts of these sorts of proposals but so that's one proposal there's also a banking proposal that has to do with firearms as well can you just talk a little bit about what's going on with that well one of the i would say problems that we're starting to see within the firearms industry is that certain banks and payment processes are being leaned on to decline to work with gun shops, gun manufacturers, and so on. Mm -hmm. And this is not some conspiracy. You can read the work of Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's widely praised at the New York Times for his economic writing, who has made this something of a crusade. Yep. His argument is that if we can't, thanks to the Second Amendment, undermine the right to keep and bear arms with legislation, then the bank should do it. And Governor DeSantis is pushing back against this and saying, not in Florida. Now, I am, generally speaking, uh, one of those old Reaganite dinosaurs that you hear so much about, who believes in free markets and limited government. I don't, as the kids say, know what time it is, Stephen. But <laughs> but I think in this area, this sort of legislation is necessary. And I don't think that because it has arisen in Florida or because this has come up in the last couple of weeks. I've been writing this for five, six, seven years. Banks are not 
free market institutions in the way that most organizations are. For example, although I don't want it to, Twitter has every single right to kick me off tomorrow for no reason. Twitter has free speech rights. If it just says I don't like Charles Cook's face, I don't like his eyes, he's off. That's fine. I don't own Twitter. I have no right to Twitter. It's a website among many. The barriers to entry are extremely low. The same is true, in my estimation, for most brick-and-mortar businesses too. Now, I understand that there are anti-discrimination rules, but I don't want to force my local pizza place to serve me. I don't want to force my local pizza place, frankly, to allow concealed weapons. I probably won't go there if they don't, but if they put a sign on the door saying no weapons, that's fine. I believe in free markets. I believe in private property. Banks, though, not really the same. I mean, to run a bank, you have to get a charter from the government. You can't just start one up. It's not like a website where you just register one, plug a computer into the wall, allocate it an IP address, and you're, you're done. You have to get a charter from the government. Then you have to follow the most Byzantine series of rules and regulations in American law. Uh, you are then federally, in most cases, federally insured by the taxpayer. Every single account in the vast majority of banks is insured up to a quarter of a million dollars under FDIC rules by the taxpayer. And as we've seen during very many uh, recessions and lulls and panics and emergencies in recent years, the government will quite happily write large checks to keep the banks going. I'm not even saying they shouldn't do that, but they do it. Now, my view is that if you are going to have an organization uh, that is created and kept within a cartel, if you're going to have an organization that cannot be started without government acquiescence, if you're going to have an organization that is subject to extraordinary, um, an extraordinary thicket of rules, if you're going to have an organization uh, that is subsidized by, in many cases, or at least bailed out by and insured by public money, then you cannot allow those organizations to willingly undermine the exercise of a provision within the Bill of Rights. That is crazy. You know, again, I don't want most businesses to be forced to serve people they don't like or to sell products they don't want to sell or what you will. That it's not what America is about. But the banks operate already in this incredibly tightly controlled world. So yeah, I do support federal preferably, but state laws, if not, that say if you are going to operate in the state of Florida, and if we're going to give you all of this protection and this, this underwriting, if we're going to give you permission to operate, then yeah, you have to serve everyone who's engaged in lawful commerce, irrespective of what that commerce is. And I, I think this is a good idea. Uh, and I think it's an idea that is that is pushing back against a very clear attempt to get around the law by making it impossible for gun operators, uh, gun shops uh, to operate in the United States. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, certainly, as you mentioned at the top of that, using government power to sort of influence private companies in this way is something that uh, has been traditionally traditionally made conservatives very uncomfortable although I, you know another interesting bit to it beyond what you were saying there is as one of the reasons why it might still be a good idea in this case it also does seem to be the tactic that DeSantis is is promoting here is different than say your traditional you know liberal way of of sort of trying to influence 
businesses, which was just is just by making it making it illegal by statute for them to do certain things, right? Or, or making or requiring them to do certain things by statute, um, because DeSantis's proposal, as I understand it at least, is to say that the state won't do business with these banks. Right. They're not going to require them to, uh, you know, as a, as a condition of operating in Florida to, you know, service gun companies or other targeted industries that DeSantis has talked about. Um, instead, they're going to say we the state of Florida will not do business with you. We won't put our, you know, our money as a state into your banks. We won't let you service uh, Florida state contracts in, in different ways. Uh, Texas has done this already. So it's, you know, there is one example of this happening elsewhere. Uh, Do you think that is another, like, is that something else that, uh, why you are more comfortable with this than, you know, some other approaches to um, regulating the banks? Well, no, the, the, the reason that I outlined my maximalist argument is because obviously that includes the approach that you just described. I mean, mm. If you're fine with the state saying you have to serve all customers engaged in legally uh, sanctioned commerce, then you're fine with Florida determining which banks it will do business with on that basis. So I, it's not contingent for me upon the the less intrusive rule. Okay. I mean, the funny thing about that one is that there are certain Supreme Court cases that govern the state's ability to decide with whom they will do business based on viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so while these were strenuously opposed by originalists such as Scalia and Thomas, current American law does contain a series of precedents that hold that you cannot, for example, win a mayoral race and then because Dan's car service came out against you during the election, cancel the state uh, contracts with Dan's car service. I mean, this was the one plausible threat to what DeSantis did with Disney, for example, was that if you can establish retaliation, then you could plausibly get a court to strike down the move. It's not that the move is illegal per se. No one is forced to do business with Dan's car service. But if it was intrinsically retaliatory in nature, and that could be demonstrated, then some courts have shown a willingness to strike down the change. I don't think that that applies here, though, because what DeSantis is saying is, if the companies in question aren't ecumenical, If the companies in question aren't willing to do business with everyone, then we don't want anything to do with them. It's not if the companies in question are doing gun transactions, we won't deal with them. And that makes it a little bit different than some of the other cases we've seen where, for example, uh, the city of Los Angeles has said, we will not hire vendors who deal with the National Rifle Association. Right. That got struck down on First Amendment grounds because it was deemed viewpoint discrimination. DeSantis is saying the opposite. He's saying, if you don't treat everyone equally in the marketplace, then we don't want to do business with you as a state. And I just can't see a circumstance in which that would fall foul of the law. And I don't have a problem with it on the merits either. As I say, I think if you are a very heavily regulated publicly 
chartered corporation, you are so entwined with government that it is ridiculous for you to be able to use your market position to try to undermine the rights that the government has been charged with upholding. Mm -hmm. And I have no issue whatsoever with interference. Okay. And so both of these proposals are backed by the leader of the Senate and the House in Florida, who are both Republicans, of course. And Republicans have a, a majority in both chambers at this point. Super so, majority in both chambers. Right. So these <laughs> seem it's gonna go like through. there's, yeah, they're, they're, these are going to make it into law. DeSantis is going to sign them. Um, there's no, there's no real like uh, drama to that point, right? There might be some right. tweaks, like, you know, it's some of the stuff you talked about with permitless carry, but at the end of the day, they're going to pass both of these, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think they are both because of the raw numbers that you mentioned. There are super majorities in both houses now, but also because DeSantis has worked more closely with the legislature than any recent Republican governor. And what I mean by that is that the legislature is extremely unlikely, given the close relationship that DeSantis has with leadership, to bring anything to the floor and pass it that would subsequently be vetoed. Now, that's not always been the case in Florida, uh, but the legislature is just aware, as is anyone else, that DeSantis is, well, two things. Firstly, the reason some of them are in the legislature in the first place, because DeSantis's victory was so big, it pulled a whole bunch of people over the line who now owe their jobs to him. But also that DeSantis is thinking about running for president. It's probably going to run for president. And it's just not in the interest of the Florida Republican Party to put up a bunch of bills that he has to veto and that embarrass him. As somebody who likes stronger legislatures than executives, that makes me a little bit uneasy. But that is a description of what is happening rather than an endorsement hmm. of what is happening. If these bills have got this far, DeSantis is going to sign them. Yeah, and uh, he's already back committed to, the, to that publicly. Yeah, so. but to go back to the previous bill, I mean, I, I, I'm, this is a hypothetical, but let's assume that DeSantis were privately uncomfortable with an open carry provision. So I think that if that were to find its way into the law, I suspect there would be a phone call made from Tallahassee and it would be made clear hmm. um, that he would rather not sign it. So yeah. I, you know, I think there's a lot of collusion <laughs> with sure. at the moment. So, yeah, to answer your question, if those bills have got this far, they're going to pass and be signed. Yeah. And this actually dovetails well with the rest of what I want to talk about, which is the political implications of all this. So, what you know, I think DeSantis getting some significant pro-gun reforms enacted in the lead up to the Republican primary for president in 2024 is going to have a meaningful impact on his chances there. I mean, it seems to me like he's kind of shoring up his right flank on this particular issue, which is an important issue when it comes to Republican right. primary voters. Do you think that's an accurate assessment of what's going on here? I mean, he has, you know, it's, it took a while for him to pass any program bills. He didn't do it in his first term, but now he's getting to it. And it's yeah. hard to ignore the timing, I think. I think you're exactly right. Uh, again, this is a description of DeSantis, not an endorsement. Uh, I am broadly pro DeSantis. I agree with most of the stuff he's done. I voted for him twice. I also have been pretty critical of him in certain areas, and I'll continue to be so. So what I'm about to say is not a holistic endorsement of DeSantis. It's a description of his behavior. 
if you look at the last year of Florida politics, you will see Ron DeSantis very carefully and assiduously giving himself the chance to push back against criticism, both within the Republican primary and a potential general election. Some of the things that DeSantis has done that I don't like are very clearly a way of neutralizing attacks that he anticipates coming his way even when he runs for president. For example, he has taken steps with the legislature to weaken teachers' unions, but he's also given teachers a big pay rise twice. He was instrumental in the passage of a bill and the allocation of funds that help people in certain professions pay their mortgage. Now, this isn't a huge amount of money. It's actually equivalent to what Florida spends on protecting manatees every year. But it, it gives nurses, doctors, firefighters, you know, these professions, especially for people moving out of state, a little bit of help with their mortgage. I oppose this profoundly. I don't think that's what government is for. I also understand why he did it, which is so that if people say, you know, you hate everyone except the rich, he can say, no, I don't look at my mortgage bill. If people say, look, you uh, hate teachers, he can say that's nonsense. I gave them big raises twice. Um, and I think what we've seen with guns is exactly the same. DeSantis does agree with constitutional carry. He's not pandering, uh, but he is aware that Florida has lagged behind in this area and that he is potentially going to be standing on a stage with people from states that passed it a long time ago. Right. And I don't know who's going to run. But let's assume for the sake of argument that on the same stage as DeSantis are Christy Nome, Greg Abbott, Brian Kemp, Yep. You know, all of those states are constitutional carry states. And they're going to ask him, why didn't you do this mm -hmm. when you had the chance? You're now six years at that point into your term. And yep. there's not a good answer for it. He can't say the Democrats in Congress, the state legislature vetoed it. He can't say as Trump could, well, because I was the president of the United States. That's got nothing to do with state law. He would have to say, yeah, I just didn't do it. <laughs> That's right. just not a good answer in a primary. Right. So I think you're precisely right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like you go up against, with, without passing these reforms, if he you know, made it into a primary, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Trump, who's going to be obviously the big elephant in the room when it comes to the, the primary and any whatever chances DeSantis has there. But ignoring him for a moment, if he goes up against Kemp, who passed constitutional carry in Georgia, which is a more of a purple state now, or yeah. at least trending in that direction. And while DeSantis didn't get it done in Florida, which is a state trending in the red direction, you know, that's going to be a that's going to be a hard thing to justify. And same thing when you look at Texas, which is another big red state. If Abbott passed constitutional carry, Abbott passed a banking bill, Abbott passed a slew of other pro-gun reforms, and DeSantis didn't do anything, that would be a huge problem for him, you know, in the primary at the very least. And so it, it seems like this is really kind of smart politics um, to, to go, if, if you're going to have, you're going to at least give your chance, give yourself a chance of pursuing the Republican 
prime uh you know nomination for president in 2024 it seems like he's got to pass these sorts of bills well and even just in visual form i mean if you look at a map of permitless carry states florida now sticks mm-hmm. out uh, yep. along with louisiana louisiana has a good excuse and that is that the legislature keeps introducing it but they have a democratic governor he's a conservative democrat but he's also a, a democrat who is opposed to permitless carry mm-hmm. he's fine with shall issue Concealed yeah. carry. Florida is one of the only triple red states that doesn't have permanent right. carry at this point. Right. So if you're driving across the South, I mean, you leave Louisiana and you get into Mississippi and then you get into Alabama and then you get into Georgia and then you can't go any further if you uh, if you want to stay in a permanent carry state. So, yeah, I, I, I think it is a liability for him. It, it's also one of those issues and the same is true of the banking question which yields completely imbalanced reactions in different parts of the electorate. People who are opposed to permitless carry don't care about it. They might tell you if you ask them, do you favor it? No, I don't. But they don't vote on it. It's just not important to them. It will pass. They'll forget about it in 10 minutes. The people who want constitutional carry, (laughs) they want it big time. And they mistrust people who don't deliver it. Uh, so yeah, it's a proxy for his argument that you know he's a fighter who gets things done. Right. This was probably pretty important in a primary. Yeah, and I think the banking thing fits really well politically with with the rest of what he's trying to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whatever you think of the policy, uh, the merits of it, it fits so well with his approach to politics at this point. You know, it's sort of this idea of using the government, uh, using what power he has to push back against large elitist institutions as they, you know, in his view, are oppressing um, your sort of average everyday Americans. That's sort of the narrative that he's gone with, the woke corporations and how to push back against them. And so this is sort of another example of how uh, that fits into that narrative that he's, that he's, uh, you know, right. using in his political ascendance. So uh, it's just beyond the merits of the law. It makes a lot of sense politically. I think that's exactly right. And so now let's talk about the elephant right in the primary. Uh, Trump and DeSantis, how how do you think this will help him stack up against his main rival at this point. You know, obviously it's super early, early polls in a primary, you know, a year out are uh, not the generally how things actually end up in real life, but uh, those are the two main people everyone are talk- everyone's talking about as far as potential nominees for the Republicans. Trump has a, I don't know, mixed record, interesting record on guns. DeSantis, if he passes these, will have a, a, a solid legislative record that Trump doesn't have. All right, Trump never passed any significant gun reforms as president. Um, beyond there were some repeals of, uh, you know, social security, social security stuff that Obama had rule that he had tried to implement got repealed at the very beginning of the Trump administration, but there wasn't anything beyond that legislatively, you know, ma- mainly because there's just weren't 60 Republican senators, um, yeah. to get something through, but, but it still stands that that's the case. He unilaterally implemented the bump stock ban that's now been ruled unconstitutional by the fifth circuit. Um, but then at the same time, he, you know, 
designated gun businesses as essential during the pandemic. And of course, the big thing is that he appointed two Supreme Court justices that were uh, in the majority in the Bruin case. So his record is what it is. If DeSantis passes these bills, he'll have some legislative accomplishments, but there's also a few things, maybe missteps. There was the, um, he the, supposedly tried to ban the carry of guns at one of his events. Uh, recently, that's sort of a, uh, at least a symbolic misstep, perhaps, uh, if, especially if he keeps doing stuff like that, it could hurt him. But, you know, how do you think these are these two are going to stack up if this if these bills do get passed? I think it's a great question. I don't think that Donald Trump actually believes that the Second Amendment is imperative, but I can't really fault him with the exception of the bump stock ban on anything he actually did. There were a few things that Trump said that were a problem. That meeting when he said he loves to take the guns away first and when he intimated to Dianne Feinstein that they would look at an assault weapons ban. Yeah. But what he actually did was appoint three Supreme Court justices who signed on to the Bruin opinion. Right. He would have signed concealed carry reciprocity at the federal level if it had got more than 57 votes, three more votes. That would have gone to his desk. He'd have signed it. Spoke at the NRA convention. He never seemed as if he was going to jeopardize the Second Amendment. The same is true of DeSantis. And I think DeSantis actually has an ideological pre-commitment to the right to bear arms. Mm. Uh, DeSantis's record in Florida on guns is good, uh, or it's about to be good. Um, it's going to be difficult, really, to draw a line mm. between them. I, I think the, the differences between them are really going to come in other areas, it, it's going to be pretty tough for either of them to lay a hand on the other one on guns, in my view. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot but of sense. But that does underscore your point, which is that unless DeSantis had done these two bills, then Trump would have been able to say to him, you did nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You know, it, it, I think it will be hard if you're just looking at you know, there's obviously a lot of other things to look at when it comes to Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. But if you're just looking at gun policy, it probably will be very difficult to, you know, I mean, do the Supreme Court justices trump the legislative accomplishments of DeSantis? I mean, maybe they do, right? Uh, you could, depends on how you measure those things or how you balance yeah. them out in your own Well, of course, the problem with that is even if they do trump the legislative accomplishments of the governor of Florida, the governor of Florida was not in the position to sure. make those. And Would DeSantis I, I, have I, appointed different justices? Probably no. not, right? No, the, yeah. he doesn't worry me there. He's... Uh, I mean, by all accounts, he's good friends with Clarence Thomas. He seems to have his head screwed on judicially. So, yeah, I mean, it, 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 if DeSantis gets these bills through, which it certainly looks like he will, uh, it does even this playing field quite a bit and makes it does. The, it's even against Trump. It's something that he takes off the table. Like, yeah, it, it takes off the table against Kemper or Abbott, too. But it's also something that, you know, if you're if you're ultimately going to. Uh, take down the former president who's running for the nomination again, uh, you know, you have to 
try and clear away as much as you can of the things that he could go after you for. Right, right. Hmm. And there isn't much to go after DeSantis for in a Republican primary. Again, right. because I am a classical liberal, I have some issues with what DeSantis has done. None of it's disqualifying. This is a really strange trend in our politics now where people say, you disagree with him on these three things. How could you vote for him? Well, unless they're disqualifying, which I think Trump's behavior after the election was, then right. I'm happy to vote for the person I agree with 51% of the time. Yeah. Um, but the things that I dislike about DeSantis are going to help not hurt him in a Republican primary. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, yeah. Although of course I think with primaries and elections, oftentimes commentators and, and consultants are sort of like generals fighting the last war. It's like, mm -hmm. just because this happened the last time does not necessarily mean right. that's how right. things will go this time too. Correct. Um, so it'll be interesting. Uh, you know, this, we're super early on here. Uh, we're obviously looking way ahead, which, it makes the predictions much less reliable, but, but I, yeah, I just figured there's a lot of news coming out of Florida and the white, you know, the white house is getting involved in attacking DeSantis now too. So they clearly see him as a potential contender, a potential opponent in the, in the general election. Right. You know, right. That it's something that they're elevating him to with these attacks. And, you know, he's out there doing a lot of things that are newsworthy and newsworthy on guns. So, uh, you know, I figured it was a good time to have our absolutely our Florida man on who <laughs> also happens to be a, a gun uh, expert. And, uh, you know, I think I think that has panned out well here because I think we've gone over a pretty good amount of the scenarios and how they, they're likely to play out. But of course, I think we'll do this again, maybe when we get a little bit closer to, you know, maybe when DeSantis actually declares his candidacy, sure. he hasn't even done that yet, right? Um, and we'll, we'll have to come back and reevaluate once these laws pass. Uh, if they don't pass, I mean, that would be pretty remarkable uh, occurrence given everything. But Oh, they're going to pass. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on and, and go through, you know, what these how this actually panned out. And maybe look once we know a little bit more about how the primary is moving, because, again, it's so early. But it's a, it's a good thing to have a preview of where we're at right now. I agree. Absolutely. So tell people, uh, you know, where they can find more of your writing. Well, I write for National Review, so you can find it at nationalreview.com. And I also have my own podcast, creatively titled The Charles C.W. Cook Podcast, which you'll find if you type The Charles C.W. Cook Podcast into Google. That's why it's called that, because I noticed that people were typing Charles C.W. Cook Podcast into Google. Uh, and... Uh, I also write for the NRA's First Freedom magazine pretty much every month and then occasionally in places like the New York Times or the Washington Post and, uh, well, whoever will have me, really. Yeah. And uh, by the way, when are you going to try out the Velociraptor down? You know, in one right month. Down. In what, Velocicoaster in one month. Velocicoaster. I'm taking my, uh, my six-year-old. Well, I'm taking the whole family, but my six-year-old wants to go for his birthday. Nice. So that's on that's on my list. It's going to be ticked off. For anyone who doesn't know, Charles and I are big coaster enthusiasts. I just did Candemonium last year at Hershey. They're opening uh, an RMC of Wildcat, so I probably have to go right so back good. up there again this year. Um, and so uh, hopefully, we, I know we want to do a roller coaster tour at some point. Exactly. 
schedules make it hard, but I, I think we should try. I really want to do that. Maybe we'll do a special podcast just for uh, maybe we do like a, a TV series. Really? Uh, right. t- hey, I'd be down. Uh, anyone? <laughs> maybe maybe I'll talk to CNN and see what they. What yeah, they exactly. Think. Anyone's interested exactly. in in two guys going across the country riding all the roller coasters? I'd be <clears throat> more than happy to participate in that. Or maybe just exactly. you know, great adventure to Cedar Point and get all the good Pennsylvania parks in between. It's a pilgrimage. That'd be, that'd be nice. But all right, well, we'll have to have you back on real soon uh, to talk more about this. Thank you so much for for being with us. We're going to head over to the news segment now. All right, we are here with the news update with our contributing writer, Jake Fogelman. How are you doing today, Jake? I'm doing all right, Steve. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, You have a pretty interesting story out of California that deals with gun carry that I think is probably going to be uh, pretty significant one moving forward when we talk about legal challenges to these new gun carry regimes in some deep blue states like California or specifically in deep blue localities. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background on what exactly happened here? Sure. Yeah. So the city of Laverne, California, it's a relatively small city just outside of Los Angeles. It's one of the suburbs in the sort of the LA metro area. Uh, They have just announced they're finally opening up their concealed uh, carry permit application process. So, you know, some nine months after the Bruin decision was handed down, um, didn't waste any time, I guess. Um, But that's not the biggest part. Um, They put a fee schedule, a chart on their website, basically breaking down the cost of what it's going to take for residents to apply. And for first time applicants, the fees total to just under $1,100 for <laughs> to apply for a carry permit, which right. is by far the, the biggest amount that I've seen anywhere in the country thus far. I know I'm what's uh, possibly there's what's typical, Sorry, I think, for for other states. Yeah, most states have some sort of concealed carry permit. Give us an idea of what some of states who've had this for decades actually charge. Sure. So my own personal experience here in Colorado, uh, at the state level, they're capped at charging $52 um, is is the max they're allowed to charge. And localities can tack on up to another $100 on top of that. So no more than $152 for the whole process. I know other states uh, like Pennsylvania, it's something like $20. Um, uh, I believe Indiana, you can get a lifetime permit for something like $20 to $30. Uh, So (laughs) $1,000 is by far and away outside the norm for states that have been doing this for, as you said, decades. Yeah. In Virginia, we have a $50 fee. So that's more normal. I think DC was was a pretty big outlier when they moved to shall issue or when they started issuing permits years ago. And theirs, I think, is about 100 bucks plus, uh, you know, there's fingerprinting fees. And then you also have to get uh, a more extensive class as well that can so it adds up to a couple hundred dollars usually when all said and done but but yeah so this new process out in california in this locality is pretty far outside of the norm right yeah absolutely and it's it's funny there uh the breakdown of charges you can tell that they're just finding every in my opinion finding every reason to tack on charges to kind of perhaps dissuade people from applying because uh, if yeah. you look at the piece that I wrote, there, there's a, a fee for processing, there's a fee for administrative, there's a fee for licensing, 
there's a fee for the CCW card. I'm not sure how licensing and CCW card are different. I'm not sure how administrative and processing are different. It's just all these <laughs> racked up charges that yeah. you're just finding every way to potentially get more money out of an applicant and perhaps dissuade, especially lower income folks from, from applying for these permits. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty transparent what they're trying to do with this, right? which is they don't want to issue concealed carry permits. And so they're going to make it as hard as possible for people to get those permits. But seems like they're probably going to run into some legal problems with this, right? Yeah. So if, if uh, listeners will recall, the Bruin decision actually specifically addressed this in a, in a part of the majority. Uh, Justice Thomas, uh, on one hand, basically gave a blessing to shall issue states that objectively issue permits. He said, we're not here to cast doubt on permitting per se. However, we re he basically said, we reserve the right to uh, address constitutional challenges to licensing regimes that are either onerous because the process is just really long um, and it creates a delay in the ability to carry or that's exorbitantly expensive, which uh, in this case, I, in my opinion, it would seem that a $1,000 plus uh, license might fall into that camp. So, um, yeah, and that, that this that's just for your first time applying, right? There's also renewal fees, right? And uh, how quickly do you have to renew under this? Yeah, so uh, under California law, concealed carry permits are only valid for two years. So you'd have to re uh, renew every two years. Uh, going back to what we talked about, what the norm is elsewhere, it's usually five five years in other states is what yeah. I found. It's Virginia's five. Um, so it's two years. And don't worry, you get a little bit of a discount on your renewal. It's just uh, $647 this time to renew every two years. So <laughs> they're saving you a little bit of money there when you want to re-up your permit. Yeah, and... Um... So, you know, ultimately, this will probably result in some sort of legal action, right? Isn't there already a gun rights group that's looking into this? Yeah. So the California Rifle and Pistol Association, they're a big gun rights group out there in California. We've covered them in, in gun stories in the past in the state. They uh, uh, This week, as of our recording, um, sent a letter to the city and the police department there in Laverne, basically saying, this is unacceptable. We're keeping an eye on this. They cite Justice Thomas's quote from the Bruin opinion uh, about, hey, you can't just charge exorbitant fees. Um, and they said, hey, we're happy to work with you to, you know, figure out where we can knock down some of those costs. Um, and if you don't, we will have no other choice but to start litigation. So clearly they've been put on notice. Um, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like the town has sort of understood that this is probably not going to go well for them. And there's going to be a, a forthcoming meeting to, to perhaps decide where they're going to go going forward. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to see how that goes. But uh, it does, in fact, look like there's perhaps going to be some litigation against this. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's where things end up. I mean, I, you don't propose these sort of fees, not understanding the legal risks of doing that. You know, maybe they'll back down now that the a group is specifically saying they're going to sue them. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But... Uh, I think this is probably part of a, a larger story, really, uh, that involves, you know, how some of these blue states and deep blue localities have reacted to the Bruin ruling and what they're trying to do to counteract what the court said uh, is necessary. And so, uh, you know, fees is certainly one part of it, you know, onerous process of, you know, making the the safety training course is complicated as possible and as long as possible, you know, th these are, you know, and then obviously 
the other side of it, which we've talked a lot about, which is restricting where you can legally take your gun, even if you have a permit. Those were the the ways that DC tried to deal with this issue when they were forced to adopt a shall issue permit uh, several years back. And so it's no surprise that that's how a lot of these localities and states have tried to deal with it now, uh, although they all seem to push things even further beyond what DC did. Uh, which was already among the strictest as far as shall issue permitting goes in the nation. So I imagine we're going to start to see the edges of what's constitutionally acceptable be defined here in the in the near future. Um, and so this this one could be uh, an area where the how much you can charge people to obtain a, a government license uh to exercise a constitutional right, a right that the Supreme Court has recognized is protected by the Second Amendment, um, you know, the, what the limits of that are will probably be spelled out pretty soon here, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's one thing worth keeping in mind that California has still yet to pass its like New York copycat mm -hmm. anti-Bruin bill, you know. So if litigation obviously takes time, even if they file, if uh, the gun rights groups file suit against this particular city, it could be a situation where residents of this particular city are stuck on the one hand having to pay exorbitant amounts of money to get a permit. And then once that California bill kicks in, suddenly not really being able to take advantage of the permit at all in the first place, because, yeah. you know, vast swaths of the state are now sensitive places. And there's all these time, place and manner restrictions on where they can carry their guns. So it really, really could create a sort of a whirlwind for folks for, as you said, trying to exercise a now recognized constitutional right to carry a firearm. Yeah. And, and you know, that's, that's just the political reality in these states, I think. Um, unfortunate for those who live there and want to be able to exercise this right. But uh, I think everyone should have expected that this is how they would react. They would try to push the boundaries of what they can do under the new rules and uh, go well beyond those boundaries until they're told otherwise by the courts. So um, hopefully we'll see quick court action on this. I mean, that's sort of the linchpin for all these things is whether the, the lower courts are going to uh, enforce the Bruin ruling in line with what the Supreme Court wants. And if they don't, whether the Supreme Court is going to step in and go further on the issue. So that that's those are the key things we're going to be watching for. Of course, we've already been covering a lot of this in in other states like New York and New Jersey where these fights have been playing out, but fees fees uh we haven't really seen a marquee case on fees and so this one might well uh create that sort of case. But we will we will continue to watch this and I know you're you're you have a members piece that uh, you're working on right now that should be out by the time the podcast is out uh, that looks at how some of these other localities and states have have tried to implement their fee structures and you know the differences between them uh, and whether you know how much of an outlier is uh, this this California locality compared to some of the what others have done so people should head over to reload.com and check that out if they haven't yet especially if you're a member if you're not a member you should pick up a membership but Speaking of Reload members, we are going to head over to a member segment right now, one of my favorite segments. And uh, so we're going to go talk to Liz Mayer, who's um, a Reload member and a uh, prominent political consultant. So we're going to head over to that interview right now. All right. It's time for one of my favorite segments, the member segment. 
this week, we have Liz Mayer, who is a former RNC spokesperson, writer, and consultant. So welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Can you uh, just tell people a little bit about your personal story? Obviously, it's a little more of a personal interview. We like to bring some of the members on and get to know them a little bit. Uh, what's what's your background beyond some of the, the highlights that I mentioned there? Yeah. So, I mean, most people do know me as a political consultant. I also got my start originally on the writing side of politics, not on this sort of, you know, actual professional consulting side of politics. Um, so I do uh, less frequently than I should, but I do still write occasionally for the New York Times, Washington Post, Daily Beast, Washington Examiner, a few other places on and off. Um, and I've always appreciated your writing on gun issues. Uh, I think that you have been incisive and capable of getting at details that, frankly, I think a lot of people gloss over, either because they're more interested in talking about sort of the cultural aspects of, of you know, sort of gun rights supporting um, and gun rights issues, um, or, uh, frankly, because they just don't actually understand guns, um, <laughs> which yeah. is obviously yes. a common problem common that we problem. encounter. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I've always found that interesting because as somebody who has always been a really strong libertarian, particularly with regard to civil liberties, I have never seen the Second Amendment as different to, say, the First Amendment in that mm. regard. All of them are very important. And I don't think we have a country without defending maximalist civil liberties, all of them. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I come to all of this from. Um, I, just, I think you know, that's actually a really interesting point there about the the civil liberties aspect of the second, mm -hmm. amendment, right? Like that's one thing I've always tried to get across to other reporters is like, think about this from a perspective of, you know, what, what if the same law was applied to the first amendment rights that we have? Oh, yeah. right? uh, and, you know, just to get a frame of reference, at least for how uh, second amendment advocates think about this issue. Right. And, uh, you know, because I think that's something that just it doesn't cross the mind of a lot of people when, when they talk about guns, yeah, no, that's right. But that that is very much how I've always thought of it. Um, I mean, you know, to be fair, I did grow up mostly in a household um, and with grandparents who were respectively originally from Utah and Montana. So not people who were like afraid of guns or hadn't been around guns. My grandparents, uh, when I was a kid, had um, a house with a bunch of acreage that you could possibly kind of call like a small ranch. Um, there was, you know, there were cattle next to it, mostly dairy cattle, but we did, uh, they, we did have a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of steers there. Um, and so, you know, being in that environment, like there were guns around, they weren't AR-15s, they were other guns and they were used for practical purposes. But, you know, I don't tend to come from the come to this from the sort of gun culture side of it. I tend to come to it from the civil libertarian side of it, which is maybe not totally surprising, given some of the sort of Mountain West background. And then also, you know, I grew up like in Western Washington state, like in Seattle. Um, you know, I don't think people have the same approach to gun culture that you would find, for example, in the South or the Midwest pretty clearly. But you do have a lot of civil libertarians there. And so that's kind of how I've always regarded these things. Um, plus, also, I, you know, I've always been interested in history, as you can kind of see looking at my bookshelf. Um, and to me, you know, people talk a lot in politics about this in terms of not offending constituencies like hunters or fishermen. And I, I don't know, to me, I, I just have always looked at this and gone, you know, they didn't write the Second Amendment because they wanted to protect people's ability to hunt deer. Right. It was because we actually had to overthrow a government and, you know, not advocating for anybody doing that. But 
that is sort of the historical context. And when you think about the historical context for things like the First Amendment, too, or, you know, frankly, anything else, like a lot of things that, that are in the Constitution that apply to, you know, warrantless wiretapping, for example, um, you know, those things are there for a purpose and they still have modern applicability. And I think the idea of rolling them back is actually quite dangerous. Yeah. And that is an interesting dichotomy, though, right? You know, you see this all the time in our politics where a lot of the focus is put on hunting. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that's not besides the fact that the trend in gun ownership over the last several decades, especially the last few years, is towards people who are not hunters necessarily. It is much more towards the use of firearms for self-defense or sport shooting. Um, you know, this old way of thinking about it um, is still so prominent in many elected officials these days, especially in Washington. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the other aspect of it, too, of like, you know, you're, you're not... Reminds me a little bit of uh, Guy Benson, who's uh, works at Town Hall, right, and uh, yeah. on Fox. Um, I know he's always talked about how he doesn't own guns. This might have changed recently. I, have to, I should talk mm-hmm. to him actually. Go to the range with him, but uh, he lives uh, nearby me here in Virginia, I think. Yeah, and um, uh, so do you, right? You're in Virginia as well, or in DC. I used area. to be in Virginia. I'm actually now in Connecticut. So oh, I okay. Do not own guns because ah. it's basically possible in the state. Um, but yes, I think I think where you're going with this is that Guy has always been tremendously supportive of the mm-hmm. Second Amendment and of gun rights. Right. However, he's not like a gun guy. And yeah, I would say I, Guy and I guy are probably, is not a gun guy. Guy is not a gun guy. Right. Yeah. I would say Guy and I are probably somewhat similar there. Um, yeah, I mean, that's I, I, I enjoy shooting. Um, I, I also will totally embarrass my mother here and say that I am the member of the family who is definitely the weaker shot. Um, you know, my mom, uh, now her eyes are going a bit, so it's not like she's going to the range and whatnot, but my mom used to be an absolutely amazing shot. Um, mm. So, you know, to the extent that we have anything that's cultural there, it's that I'm, you know, my mom definitely used to enjoy going and, you know, shooting some tin cans or Frankly, one time when we were in Vietnam, um, we were out by the Viet Cong tunnels and they had a range there where it was a very long distance range and you could hire a Kalashnikov and shoot it. And my mom did. And nice. she only she only hired enough where we had five bullets. And from I don't know what distance, I'm not great with distances, but a very far distance she hit the bullseye three times in a row and then passed me the gun. And I just hope to God, I didn't like kill somebody's water Buffalo or something. (laughs) I, that's, I mean, I'm a reasonably decent shot, but she's like the person who, if in 1964, when she had graduated from high school, if the job in American sniper had been available to 18 year old girls, like definitely, definitely the military should have recruited her into that. So uh, so yeah, Guy, Guy and I so, are definitely um, apart from, I would say, people like my mom and definitely apart from a lot of the people that I think you find in the South and the Midwest for whom this is really cultural mm-hmm. as opposed to more sort of philosophically driven. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, but it's something that isn't talked about a lot because most people, when you discuss those defending gun rights, they tend to be gun owners or people mm-hmm. who are very much. Uh, really collectors almost, right? I'm sure right. people would consider me a collector, even though I have a very small number of firearms right. compared to many other people out there. But um, but you don't hear a lot about uh, people who aren't gun owners, but still value the Second Amendment uh, as a civil liberty, uh, even though I think that's probably a significant portion of the population, because 
for instance, yeah. you know, there's uh, the AP has in their most recent poll uh, identified 46% of Americans say they have a gun in the home, but um, you know, Gallup polling shows that, for instance, um, when it comes to a ban on handguns, you know, 80 plus percent of people oppose that. And so you have a lot of people who don't personally own firearms, but think that people ought to be able to do that. I think that's right. And I think some of that is people's understanding of their importance when it comes to self-defense, right? I think that um, you have a lot of women who don't necessarily own a gun, but always want to be in a position where if you start having somebody stalking or harassing you, you're capable of going and getting one. Um, that's certainly something that I've noticed a lot in that sphere. Um, but yeah, I think in general, I mean, Americans do have a different attitude. I'm also British, so I can say Americans yes. have a very different comes attitude. Across. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We definitely have a different attitude when it comes to mm. both gun culture and gun rights than what you're going to find in other places. Certainly. And a lot of that is because of our history. And it's not just the like, you know, we have more recently than, say, my ancestors in Scotland been out in the wilderness in places where like, you know, hypothetically, you might actually have a large predatory animal come at you and you might actually need to shoot the thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But it is also this, you know, having having had the history of overthrowing a government uh, context. And so yeah. well, you know, a huge I, I don't think problem. I don't think anybody intends to do that now. And certainly, you know, I think I think we all get the point that Joe Biden likes to make when he says, you know, you're not going to be able to take on an F-16, um, although I, I would remind him of the Posse Comitatus Act when he says that. Um, yeah. You know, it does yeah, still, some of his most disturbing still, comments, frankly. But yeah, um, I, I mean, I personally, I'd love, to, I'd love to have my own F sixteen. You, know, <laughs> you can own jets, actually. Uh, you can't own like. Uh, I, th I think probably ones, it's but... a little outside my price range. Yes, you have to be very rich. I think that's really my major obstacle there is is not so much you know what what Biden's interpretation is yeah. of access to what weapons. people think. You can own a lot more things than people think you can. You can own howitzers yeah. and tanks and jets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. It's not illegal. There's yeah, regulations. No, no, we, uh, we we have a a friend of a client who has uh, a property. I believe it's in Virginia, possibly in West Virginia now. Where yes, in fact, you can go drive the tank around and fire the yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. I've kind of always intended to do it, but you know, there's a couple like, places you can rent tanks in the U.S. You can do it in Vegas, actually. I feel like uh, I feel like doing it in Vegas would be a little bit of sort of overload of stimuli. I mean, you I can do anything in Vegas, right? Well, that's true. That is basically true. You yeah. can fly. I've shot machine guns from a helicopter in Vegas. Um, you can. There's a lot. There's a lot of things you can do that are legal. That Again, people these are these uh, are the kinds of things know. that uh, you know. 15 years ago, I probably would have uh, infinitely more trusted my mother to do while I sat there and watched and just appreciated. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, despite what the president says, you not only could own a cannon during the founding era, but you can own cannons yes. today. <laughs> that they're yes, not yes. even regulated. The black I, powder you know, cannons. I, 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 live, I live with a Scottish man who is uh, permanently obsessed with the idea of getting a cannon. So um, yeah. every time Joe Biden says that, I get I get a lot of chat around uh, my living room about that topic. I think yeah. the little uh, soda can cannons are, are popular. So, you know, gets at least a little one. They're fun. <laughs> you gotta know what you're doing though. So Yeah, no, like I, <laughs> I don't I suggest say, everyone run out and buy the Blackout or the third when they when they have the final duel, um, they you know, Blackadder expects that it's going to be uh, using swords, but no, in fact he he's dueling with the Duke of Wellington using mini cannons. So <laughs> I feel like a mini cannon is definitely what you want. That's a very British reference right there. It is. Well, yeah, I mean he pulls he pulls out the uh, he pulls out the stoking uh, uh, whatever the stoking device is and 
says, what are we going to do? Tickle each other to death, right? <laughs> no, we fight with cannons. So there you go. But, uh, but so your work as a consultant actually yeah. brings you into some uh, gun-related issues as well. I know you're always pitching me on, on uh, the specifically issues related to Operation Choke Point back when mm -hmm. the Obama administration had tried to effectively choke off financial resources to certain industries. And one of That's those right. was the gun industry. And you've had some clients uh, affected by that. And yeah. it's still an issue today, right? Is, is, uh, it is, it does, there's a Supreme yeah, Court case coming up, right? It, it, is, it is still an issue in a couple different ways. So yeah, um, over the course of the uh, close to 12 years that I've had my firm, um, we have worked with three of the four industries that were really adversely impacted by Operation Choke Point, which really was entities within the federal government going and saying to banks, hey, you shouldn't, our guidance is you shouldn't do business with anything that we call a high risk industry. And this mm. is how we're defining those things. And so there were several industries that were really adversely impacted. Um, gun industry was one. Anybody who was in a gun, gun business really got stamped down on hard. And it was a way of administratively trying to force gun control, right? At the end of the day, if people aren't able to use their bank accounts and aren't able to affect payments, well, probably you're going to have fewer people buying guns, right? Or at least if they're doing it, they're going to have to find some other very complicated alternative mechanism. So in general, that would stem it. That was the idea, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but also uh, that effort did target um, marijuana businesses, including legal marijuana businesses, um, you know, medical cannabis research, those kinds of things. Um, I've heard plenty of stories from people who are on that end of it who were affected by it. It also affected... Uh, sort of fintech. Um, people say payday loans, but in actual fact, I think it was quite a bit broader than that. And people who would consider themselves to be outside the payday loan space, but also were not like, you know, Jamie Dimon, obviously. It also affected what we will call the adult entertainment industry. That's the one that we haven't worked with. But when we were doing a lot of work, when I was pouring through countless documents that I was uncovering in 2013 about this, a lot of it was that. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, people may not like porn. They may not like guns, but um, both of them are legal. Uh, and actually, if we're going back to the point about constitutional protections, um, you know, if you're if you're treating porn as generally information and speech, and I think that there's pretty good precedent for doing so, then there are protections in place there. And certainly with regard to guns, there are protections in place there too. And uh, nobody has just straight outlawed, you know, a whole range of the fintechs that were affected. So, you know, yeah. you've got that as well. And marijuana is a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a gray area, depending on what laws you're looking at. But certainly, right. you know, there are plenty of legal businesses that operated in that space that were affected. And still, I would add to this day, they believe that since Trump left office, they have seen more problems accessing the banking system and the financial services sector. So while I can't. Yeah, we've reported on some of that. with the Yeah. Gun so I can't businesses. definitively show like who's doing that and exactly how that's happening. But I will tell you, I mean, I have one friend, for instance, who invested, I believe it was ten thousand dollars in a in a completely legal, like obviously legal cannabis business. And literally right after wiring the money, magically, his bank account was shut with mm. no explanation and no explanation has ever been provided. So, you yeah, know, that's you similar to what happened to Brandon Wexler, Wex Gunworks down in Florida. Right. Um, well, I was going to say. And so, you know, that's the other thing is that we see when you look at uh, Florida and a lot of what Ron DeSantis has been talking about doing recently, um, mm. 
okay, Wells Fargo says that they were not pressured to close that account and that it wasn't the result of any sort of government action. Maybe, maybe it's just the wokes putting pressure. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But it sure looks like a redux of choke point to me. It sure does. And when you couple it with what the cannabis businesses have said that they've been dealing with in the Biden era, you know, the experience of my friend, I will not be very surprised if we find out that some financial regulator out there is up to this again. Um, right, I would because choke point not, wasn't out in the it's open. It's not out the IC, but it could be. Yeah. Choke point wasn't something that happened in the open. It was a scandal that broke um, you know, without, without, it wasn't publicly released. It was, it was exposed. No, and it was there were very, stories. no, it was very hush hush. And I can tell you as the person who was pitching a lot of that information and trying to break the story, it was incredibly hard to get people to write about it. People were very incredulous that even the Obama administration with their attitude towards things like guns could possibly be doing this. Um, I think partly because it targeted the cannabis industry and people were like, well, why would Obama do that? I mean, he's famous for being a pot smoker, like in high school or college or whatever. Right. But in actual fact, yes. Um, and we did a lot of digging and ultimately that was proven. Um so, yeah, I mean, I certainly hope it's not happening again, but. But you think this uh, Supreme Court case here mm. uh, that we're seeing against um, the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Yeah. Uh, and how it's funded and, and some of the questions over the constitutionality of its funding might yeah. have an effect on FDIC as well, which is was the entity that was uh, more involved in, in choke point. Correct. I mean, yeah, that seems to be the legal consensus is that. You know, if the Supreme Court decides that the CFPB is illegally funded, that the funding structure is simply not compatible with the Constitution, legal experts are saying that that then throws up a lot of questions about FDIC, too. And so one of the things that I think that naturally sort of lends itself to as a question is if FDIC is continue is dabbling again in this sort of choke point type thing, which, to be fair, uh, they certainly shouldn't be a because they shouldn't be, but b because they actually did settle with, I think it was more the payday guys on that and issued a bunch of guidance. Personally, I don't think the wording on that was as tight as what I would have liked to see, but whatever, it could still offer them some latitude. Um, but yeah, if we're in a situation where CFPB, its funding stream is deemed to be unconstitutional, that would raise issues for FDIC too. And so to the extent that they may still sort of have their fingers in these pies, that would probably present a mechanism for shutting it down, which is something that I think a lot of people who are concerned about the possible ongoing continuance of Operation Choke Point, but in a slightly different format, they are very concerned about that because we've had a situation where um, things like the Safe Banking Act that keeps being brought up that would contain a legislative bar, a firm legislative ban on anybody doing anything like choke point ever again. And unfortunately that hasn't actually made it into law. Um, it would be helpful if it did, it would be better if that was the way that we handled this rather than, you know, FDIC sort of ending up being gutted by virtue of CFPB legis or CFPB uh, litigation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th this case definitely is germane to the subject of choke point and whether anything like that could ever happen again. Well, we will have to see how that all turns out. It sounds like there could be some pretty wide reaching consequences from mm. this ruling and some that might affect how the gun industry uh, does its banking. But thank yeah, you so much right. for, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I uh, always enjoy having on different members because I think we have a pretty good variety of people, you know, high powered uh, consultants and and um, 
you know, commentators like Mary Catherine Ham came on recently. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, we have a lot of staffers on the Hill who are members. We have uh, people all around the country who are just gun owners that are interested in, in the mm-hmm. latest gun politics news. Um, and so I, I like to try and get to know some of those people and, and have, you know, have the whole community get to know a little bit better each other. So I really appreciate you, you uh, being willing to come on and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and everything that's going on with you. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate the work that you do. And, uh, you know, I've been glad to see you on TV more. I think it is super helpful every time that we have one of these mass shooting incidents. I think it is super helpful to have somebody like you come on and just do some of the basic fact checking and debunking. Um, Like I say, I am not the world expert on guns. I do not own eight AR-15s. I'm never going to own eight AR-15s. But I think the level of misinformation that exists out there Amongst other things, if people go ahead and try to draft legislation, that is going to be very difficult because there are a lot of people who just don't understand basics about yeah. what they would be legislating on. And so I think that you guys provide a really valuable service. Yeah. And, I'm, I, you know, I appreciate the, whenever they have me on and I'm, I'm hoping to to expand as much as possible their, the the story types that, that uh, you know, CNN is bringing on as far as guns. There's obviously it's important to cover those sorts of shootings, but there's a lot of other stuff going on with guns as well as we, we cover I, here on the, on the podcast. Yeah. And so well, that's always been one of my top do, And I think that possibly, you know, 2024 may present an opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think as I, as I've said pretty publicly as things stand in a contest that I anticipate being Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis, I've always believed that Donald Trump has a lot of problems from where I sit on gun rights issues. I think he's a gun grabber. Um, I think he is. Uh, he, he may culturally appeal to gun owners, but I think philosophically he's way far off of where Second Amendment defenders are. I think Ron DeSantis is much better. But I would also say as somebody who occasionally is uh, just a tad to the right of like the actual NRA, uh, I did find it very interesting recently when I was getting emails from the GOA criticizing him over his position with regard to guns at uh, political or uh, campaign or uh, gubernatorial events. And so I think uh, that that they're right there may present an opportunity for you to get out and sort of educate people more and you yeah. know potentially have a more rational, uh, informed discussion about all of this. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's uh, that was the main topic of the the interview with, with Charles on this episode. So there's a lot going on with guns. You know, DeSantis is pushing uh, a couple of pro-gun reforms, permitless carry and the one that, you know, this banking uh, bill that you mentioned earlier in this yeah. interview. Yeah. So there's certainly a lot of interesting stuff shaping up for the Republican primary when it comes to guns. I think he is really trying to shore up his right flank on the issue because yeah. uh, he needs, he needs some accomplishments on that front, right? If he wants to, do well yeah. in the Republican primary. So well, yeah, there's a I, lot, cer- there's I certainly, I certainly hope on the banking reform stuff that he, he makes some noise about that because I think people are not terribly conscious of the fact that mm. these problems are continuing to persist. And I think it's important that people get to the root of why, uh, you know, maybe it is not to do with federal government action, but it sure smells a lot like it is. And if it's just an issue yeah. of, uh, you know, people pressuring banks, then that's useful to know, too. Yep. But we will we'll have maybe we'll have you on again for a full interview uh, down the line to talk more about the politics of the Republican primary, because I think that's going to be something we follow very closely I, here. I would, um, I would love to. I would love to. And I but, suppose soon we'll probably have at least a couple other candidates. And although <laughs> I suspect it'll be more the sort of Mike Pompeo's of the world and. I don't know. Good luck. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see who all gets in and 
I mean, DeSantis isn't actually in yet either. So we'll see. No, he's not. Although we'll I'm see. expecting right around Memorial Day weekend, we're going to get the big announcement. So we'll see. That he's got to get support a legislative session first. Like you say, he has a few areas where now that he's succeeded in turning Florida red, now he has to implement some policy that mm-hmm. really accords with that so that he yeah. has a, a record to run on that is more in keeping with a lot of his rhetoric. Yep. But that's all we've got time for today. I uh, really appreciate you coming on. And we, we, would love to hear from more of you guys, more Reload members. Just reply to your Sunday newsletter if you want to be on the show, um, and we'll have you on for one of these segments. Uh, if you're not yet a member, head on over to Reload.com and buy a membership today. It's, we, this is how we fund our reporting. It's 100% member-funded, and um, if you want to see us do more of this kind of reporting, more uh, breaking news on firearms policy and politics, then that's the best way to help us out. If you're not prepared to become a member yet, you can sign up for our free newsletter, get an idea of what we do, see some of the stories we produce every week. And you can also rate and share this podcast. That helps us a lot as well. Uh, you can go over to YouTube and, and like it there. You can leave a comment, leave a review. Uh, we really appreciate all of that. But until next week, thank you so much for listening and we, we will be back. Oh, the devil.